Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is John Samples. I'm vice president and publisher here at the Cato Institute. And I'm delighted to have today a book that we are publishing at Cato, uh, the Cato Institute Press, A Dangerous World, Threat Perception and U.S. National Security, A Dangerous World Being a Question. Uh, and I would like to welcome you to a book form and thank you all for coming out and which is most certainly uh, above and beyond the call of duty on a difficult day with rain and cold, perhaps for the first time this uh, winter fall. Um, let me go over a few administrative details very quickly here, and then we can get right to the content of our presentation. Uh, we will have uh, presentations from both the editors of the volume and then two commentators during the bulk of this uh, forum. Around about 1 o'clock or a little afterwards, we will break and have a time for question and answers from you, the audience, which will run until about 1.30, after which we will go to lunch. I shall introduce each one of the, the uh, authors here from the podium and give you a sense of their background and biography. I would like to ask that everyone turn off their cell phones, uh, which can disrupt, as you may well know, disrupt a forum of this nature very easily. Uh, and with that, let's turn to the actual content. We have a lot today to cover on this very important topic. I thought I might begin by asking a question we ask at Cato quite often, which is, what should governments do? The Declaration of Independence says governments should protect rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. More recently, government is expected by many people to protect everyone from poverty, ill health, and much else. But today, with this book and this topic, we are concerned about foreign affairs. What should the government do in foreign affairs? Well, even... Um, libertarians, and perhaps even a few anarchists, believe that government exists to prevent invasion and sub subjugation of the population, at least. In other words, government protects peoples from threats to freedom from abroad, threats to the homeland, and perhaps also to various kinds of national interest. How much are we threatened in the United States concretely today, 2014, right now? Well, maybe a lot. In 2012, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff stated, quote, we are living in the most dangerous time in my lifetime right now, unquote. Keeping in mind that he's probably older than I am, that would include uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, among other things, in the time of danger. Is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs correct? Let's turn to our speakers. Our first speaker is Christopher A. Preble, the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute. He is the author of three books, including The Power Problem, How American Military Dominance Makes Us Less Safe, Less Prosperous, and Less Free. Uh, and secondly, John F. Kennedy and the Missile Gap. And with Jim Harper and our colleague Ben Friedman, the book Terrorizing Ourselves, Why U.S. Counterterrorism Policy is Failing, and how to fix it. Preble has published articles in major publications, including the New York Times and every leading newspaper. He's also published in the National Interest in Foreign Policy and can frequently be seen on television and radio. Uh, in addition to his work here at Cato, Chris teaches for US foreign policy at the University of California Washington Center. 
Before joining Cato in 2003, he taught history at St. Cloud State University and Temple University. Chris Preble was a commissioned officer in the U.S. Navy and served on board USS Ticonderoga from 1990 to 1993. He holds a PhD in history from Temple University. Chris? Thank you, John. Um, thanks to all of you for attending today, and um, including our com commentators, Jim Fallows and Frank Hoffman. Great to have them both here. Welcome to those of you in the audience and also those of you watching online at Cato.org. Um, this book began uh, almost exactly one year ago today, on October 25th, 2013, uh, in this very room, a day-long conference that we convened to explore a few central questions, including do we live in a uniquely dangerous world, as many people say, and if we do not, why do we believe that we do? And lastly, we pondered a related question, the, the ubiquitous question, really, for those of us studying public policy, why should we care? Um, before I get to the substance, I want to acknowledge the participants in that conference, most of whom contributed chapters in the book, but I especially want to thank Travis Evans, who, is Travis here? Travis is out working busily. I want to thank Travis Evans, who helped put uh, that conference together and has proved equally instrumental in, br in bringing this book to, uh, to completion. Indeed, I'm pretty sure that no one read the book more carefully in its various drafts than Travis did. So thank you, Travis, wherever you are. Maybe you can hear my voice. Um, there were moments after the conference, as we were pulling together the various chapters and commissioning a few new ones, when I had a sinking feeling that this was a foolish enterprise. <laughs> after all, the world looks uniquely dangerous, um, if you focus on the dangerous parts, obviously. And, it, and there were particular moments as this book was being worked through, you know, for example, Russia annexes the Crimea, uh, sent proxies into eastern Ukraine, so-called Islamic State doing its thing, rampaging through Iraq and Syria this summer. Moments like that, episodes like that, seem to make it all almost absurd to argue that the world is not very dangerous. When I got really nervous, I lamely thought to myself, uh, well, after all, it is a question a dangerous world? Maybe that would buy me some wiggle room if the whole planet actually did descend into utter chaos and anarchy. Well, like I said, it was rather lame. Uh, then I reminded myself, and I remind you all today, that the contributors to this volume do not dispute that there are dangers in the world. There are, there always have been, and there always will be. But the fact remains that one's chances of dying a violent, premature death are at their lowest point in human history. Human beings everywhere are living longer, healthier lives, and Americans are particularly fortunate in this regard. And that last point bears repeating. The subtitle of the book, Threat Perception and U.S. National Security, is as important as the title. When we think of the litany of security threats that Americans worry about, some are rather familiar. We still worry about war with major states, or we worry about being drawn into wars with minor states. We worry about the proliferation of nuclear weapons, mass casualty weapons, especially, especially nuclear weapons. And then there are new worries, uh, from cyber and crime and cybercrime to threats to our environment, the air we breathe, the water we drink. Um, some would accord even 
higher priority to new types of threats, higher even than the threat of physical harm that typically dominates the attention of policymakers in the military. We shouldn't stop, they would say, we shouldn't stop at ensuring that people merely live, but that they also live well. So by the standard of human security, some argue we are doing less well, that there are threats to human security. Others disagree. Two chapters in the book engage that debate. There's also the question of economic security. Uh, some fear that a war could cripple the international economy or that the mere threat of war could disrupt global trade and commerce, including the world's oil supplies. This concern, at least today, is the justification, of course, for the US military's forward presence in much of the world. And this posture is oriented around stopping possible threats before they materialize, the argument being it's not a dangerous world, but it would be if we were not there. Several chapters in this book address these questions, these economic questions, and the broader questions about grand strategy as it relates to economics. Collectively, they conclude that the patterns of global trade are far more resilient than the pessimists envision. War between major trading partners is highly unlikely, and even if it were to occur, trade flows between non-belligerents would not be disruptive, or at least not for very long. And while war itself has many horrific effects, the cost that Americans pay to stop all wars are unlikely to be outweighed by the benefits. Exaggerated fears of distant conflicts could even prompt the United States to fight wars that pose no direct threat to US security and to spend too much on the military, which in turn weakens the overall economy, which we should remember was the point in the first place. So why are we so fearful? Uh, it could be that the confluence of old and new threats contributes to the widespread perception that the world is more dangerous than it has ever been. Uh, true, many of these dangers has, have always been out there. The Roman equivalent of Al-Qaeda were the assassins. Even nuclear weapons have been around for decades. Uh, but the combinations, Al-Qaeda with nukes or cyber terrorism, seems particularly new and thus particularly frightening. Some of the contributors to the volume uh, get at these issues too. For example, these threats aren't as new as they might seem. Meanwhile, our perceptions are inevitably distorted by probability neglect. We focus a lot on the nature of the danger, but miss, or at least misperceive, the likelihood that it will occur. Uh, I seriously doubt that everyone will agree with every chapter, but that's really the whole point. Uh, we've sought at least to engender a debate, a discussion, around what is a question. Do we live in a uniquely dangerous world? The alternative, the one that I believe and fear guides our approach, is to start from a presumption of certainty. We do live in a uniquely dangerous world, and therefore, we must do X, Y, Z. <clears throat> and I think on that point, I want to close with a, just a few quick words about why we should care so much, or at least why I care so much, about getting it right. And by right, I mean correctly perceiving the world's dangers, and being able to put them into context, especially with our past. Because I know that some might quarrel with this entire, this entire threat-deflating enterprise. It's better to be safe than sorry, they might say. We should worry about all potential threats. It's better to fear things that aren't real than to take too lightly those that are. This tendency might even be baked into our DNA, our distant ancestors, who correctly perceived a four-legged creature charging at them from a distance, if they correctly perceived it to be a dangerous predator and had time to flee or defend themselves, they lived to procreate. 
By contrast, their threat-deflating neighbors, who believed the approaching beast to be harmless, realized their error too late and were mauled to death. By that standard, I would be uh, lion food. But while we have learned to take threats seriously, learned over many, many years to take threats seriously, we are also taught and we learn to differentiate the real from the imaginary. Fallacious claims of impending danger will erode one credibility to the point that the congenital fearmonger is no longer taken seriously. The parable warns of the dangers of crying wolf when there are no wolves, but it doesn't teach us to stay silent when we see one. In the parable, the wolf eventually does come and the dishonest boy is eaten. The moral of the story is not that all dangers are inflated, but rather that the phony ones should not be. In truth, we should be on the lookout for both kinds of errors. Consider the business world, which punishes both the imprudent optimist as well as the too gloomy pessimist. Many skeptics miss the chance to buy into the internet economy at its infancy, but the financial analyst who rated all tech startups as strong buys in 2000 could rightly be cast as too optimistic. Extreme risk aversion, in other words, can blind us to possibilities. An excessive fear can be harmful to our physical health and emotional well-being. We even have a name for it, anxiety disorder. But there's a political harm as well, and I want to close on this point. Individual liberty is often threatened during periods of heightened fear and anxiety. James Madison, in making the case for restraining the new government's war-making powers, warned the delegates of the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia Quote, the means of defense against foreign danger have been always the instruments of tyranny at home, unquote. He went on, among the Romans, it was a standing maxim to excite a war whenever a revolt was apprehended. Throughout all Europe, the armies kept up under the pretext of defending have enslaved the people. And a decade later, he returned to the theme. He knew that some would use fear of foreign threats to whip up public sentiment for a stronger state, and he postulated a universal truth that the loss of liberty at home is to be charged to provisions against danger, real or pretended, from abroad. Others since then have stumbled upon similar ideas about popular notions of threats and of how fear of threats have been used to grow the power of the government. The noted writer and satirist H.L. Mencken declared, quote, the whole aim of practical politics is to keep the populace alarmed and hence clamorous to be led to safety by menacing it with a series of endless hobgoblins, most of them imaginary. I submit that Madison and Mencken's warnings remain relevant today, even if Mencken, as he usually did, might have overstated the case a smidge. And that is why we work so hard to bring this book to completion on behalf of my co-editor, John Mueller, and all the contributors. We hope that you like it, or at least parts of it, and we hope that you will at least be willing to engage a discussion about those parts that you do not. Thank you very much. Thanks, Chris. Uh, our next speaker will be John Mueller, the co-editor of the volume. John is senior fellow at the Cato Institute. He's also a member of the political science department and senior research scientist with the Mershon Center of International Security Studies at Ohio State University. He's a leading expert on terrorism and particularly on the reactions and overreactions it often ins inspires. His most recent book on the subject, Terrorist Security and Money, Balancing the Risk, Benefits, and Cost of Homeland Security, which he wrote with Mark Stewart,
was published in September 2011 by Oxford University Press. Other books on the subject by John include um, Overblown, How Politicians and T the Terrorism Industry Inflate National Security Threats and Why We Believe Them, and also Atomic Obsession, Nuclear Alarmism from Hiroshima to Al-Qaeda. He's also the author of uh, several other books, one of which is War Presidents and Public Opinion, a major work of political science on that topic. John has published many, many articles in all the leading scholarly journals and also journals of public uh, debate and public intellectuals. He's been a visiting fellow at many places, including Brookings, Hoover, uh, and uh, the Norwegian Nobel, Inst Nobel Institute in Oslo. Please welcome John Mueller. Okay, thanks very much. Um, I'd like to sort of, uh, in my 10 minutes, make three points that play off the uh, discussion in the book in various ways. So each will be about three and a third minutes here. Um, one, one, uh, one point basically is, is sort of looking at the fact that the, the issue is, is, has the United States ever really been insecure? Um, uh, what's happening now, um, or has it ever been secure in, in, in its own view? Uh, it's been fairly common now to look back at the 90s as a time of great um, peace and tranquility and so forth. But let me read you what Robert Gates said in 1993, two or three or four years after the Cold War ended. Uh, he had just been, he just retired as director of this Central Intelligence Agency. The events of the last two years have led to a far more unstable, turbulent, unpredictable, and violent world. In other words, it's always been bad, always will be bad, uh, and uh, people constantly be saying that. I think in juxtaposition of that, you could argue that the United States has never really been insecure from a security standpoint. Uh, even during the Cold War, uh, by the way, Gates at that time was looking back probably at the 50s as a time of nice tranquility and so forth, and the people in the 50s are looking back probably at the 20s or something. But at any rate, uh, even during the Cold War, it seems to me, uh, there was really no real security threat to the United States. The documents coming out of the Soviet archives uh, repeatedly indicate that the Soviet Union never in a million billion years wanted to get into another war that looked like World War II with or without nuclear weapons. There was, a, and so there was no real, even though the United States was spending $10 trillion on nuclear weapons to deter the Soviet Union from attacking it or Western Europe, there's basically no military threat uh, to, to deter. Uh, the Soviet Union was a threat in the sense that it was inspiring a subversion movement, which is, uh, uh, you know, class warfare and so forth. Uh, but that obviously, as far as the United States was concerned, was, uh, you know, extremely ineffective. Uh, even going back further during World War II, it's not clear that the United States, there may have been a lot of good humanitarian reasons to get rid of Adolf Hitler, but it's not even clear that during that time, a case could certainly be made that he really didn't threaten the security of the United States. His goals were mostly to focus on the East toward the Soviet Union, um, and having him in charge of Europe would have been a really bad thing. Uh, but it would not necessarily have been a security threat to the United States. In the case of Japan, uh, virtually none whatsoever. The United States suffered Pearl Harbor, lost 2,300 lives, and then decided it should go into a war against Japan in which it would lose tens of thousands more. Um, it finally did so, but the Japanese went into that war on a shoestring, never really, uh, they, they, they may have uh, harmed some interests of the United States overseas, but not the security of the United States itself. Um, they did threaten the security of an ally, a friend, namely China, uh, and the war, of course, basically solved that problem by getting the Japanese out, and uh, then they were replaced eventually by Mao Zedong, 
who ended up killing seven times more Chinese than the Japanese ever did. Um, you can go further back and don't have to worry. I don't think too much about things earlier. The biggest security threat probably was the, the self-induced civil war between, in, 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 um, between 1861 and 1865. That really was a security threat in a lot of ways, but it didn't come from outside. Um, okay, anyway, so it, it may be that we always think we're in danger, and in many respects, uh, we haven't been. Now, bottom line, uh, the second, my second point um, has to do with sort of thinking, using the analysis of the book to sort of think about defense budgets. Uh, let me quote uh, in this respect from uh, the Gospel according to St. Newt. Um, uh, in uh, 2002, uh, Newt Gingrich, who even his friends will say the following, at any time Newt has 100 ideas, and five of them are actually pretty good. Um, and one of his good ideas came out in a, when he was running for the president in 2012. Um, defense budgets shouldn't be a matter of politics. They shouldn't be a matter of, of playing games. They should be directly related to the amount of threat we have. Now, Newt, in his 95% thing, sees all kinds of threats, like the North Koreans going to take out all our computers with an atomic bomb uh, blown high up over the skies of the United States. Uh, but I think his, his proposal is exactly right, that what you want to do is evaluate the threats and then decide how much of a defense do you want to do against them. Uh, people are going to disagree with aspects of this book, and indeed the, the, the uh, contributors disagree with each other in some respects here and there, quite a bit, in fact, in, often. Um, but if you basically take the thrust of this, if the world is not dangerous in terms of American security, the question is how much military force uh, should the United States put together? Um, it, um, the, uh, the, uh, w let me just sort of put on the table uh, the following proposition. Um, is it likely the United States will ever again, meaning say in the next 10 or 15 years, send ground troops in large numbers into action? Um, after Vietnam, the reaction was, we still want to continue the conflict, the Cold War. We still are worried about the Soviet Union. However, we don't want to send ground troops to stop it from expanding because we had this disastrous experience in Vietnam. In some respects, I think the same thing is happening now. Uh, after the disastrous uh, thing, instead of the, Iraq, instead of the Vietnam syndrome, we now have the Iraq syndrome, and people are saying much of the same thing. Um, so it's, it's conceivable, uh, a, a good argument can be made for the fact, that as no ground troops are really sent abroad for the rest of the Cold War after Vietnam um, in large numbers, uh, they mostly were not sent, uh, they may not, that, that may not happen again uh, in the next 15 years. So do we really need large standing armies to deal with that? And the same thing with so many of the other uh, issues on this. I mean, a, a possible conclusion from looking at the chapters would be to suggest that we can really massively defend, stop the, reduce the defense budget. We start out, and start, instead of starting out what we've got and then saying how can we cut off a bit to make it more reasonable, possibility to start with zero and then say what threats do we want to spend on. And it's not clear that they're, having a large standing military force uh, is required for any of the threats, no matter how you slice them, uh, that, that seem to uh, present themselves. Um, now, a really substantial disarmament obviously would bring a, um, uh, you know, there'd be risk to that. Uh, a new Hitler could arise somewhere, though presumably one manages to maintain some military force and also the capacity to rebuild fairly quickly. But it should be also pointed out that keeping large military forces is a risk itself. Uh, for example, um, in the case of Vietnam, the United States had a military force which it could send to Vietnam. If it didn't have a military force, it couldn't have done that. 
The result of, the, of Vietnam was a cosmic disaster, costing a million Vietnamese lives or more, 55,000 American lives, um, and, um, and uh, you know, a lot of other problems as well, a huge amount of money being spent on it as well. It is true that the communists did eventually win there. Uh, they might have won there if the United States hadn't intervened, but of course they uh, did um, uh, otherwise as well. So it seems to me that the, um, um, uh, uh, the, basically, the, if there had been a military force, you couldn't have used it, uh, and, the, and it would have avoided that disaster. The same thing with the war in Iraq. If there hadn't been a military force, the United States couldn't have gotten into that. There'd be over 150,000 Iraqis still not dead, at least by American action, and, and uh, six or so thousand Americans, uh, and uh, $5 trillion expended. Um, the, um, okay, let me conclude on this, I'm running out of time. Um, the, uh, uh, my thought on this uh, reflects something from the, 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 the great defense analyst, Bernard Brody, uh, once um, uh, uh, promulgated in, 19, in 1978 at, in the wake of the Vietnam War. One way of, helping, of keeping people out of trouble is to deny, deny them the means for getting into it. And it seems to me a strong case to be made for the proposition that something like that is holding at the, at the present time. Uh, let me just very briefly uh, deal with my, my third point, which is the, uh, the question about the rise of ISIS. And we can talk about this more in the discussion, and that's obviously on the tip of many people's brains at the moment. Um, the question is, is, is that a threat to American security? It's obviously a threat to somebody. And if you live in the area that they control, this is really bad news. Um, on the other hand, the, the idea that it's a threat to the United States is really hard to make. You can argue there'd be some returnees that might do some terrorist uh, uh, damage, uh, but that's likely to be very small and incompetent. And, and most of the guys going there, the foreign fighters going there, um, are burning their passports. There's the videos that ISIS has put out basically saying, you know, they, they don't want to go back. Uh, there, uh, there's also, because they're having a lot of f foreign um, fighters in, there's also the possibility of infiltration big time, which they seem to be gradually becoming uh, concerned about. They also have mindless uh, 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 plans. Uh, the, the leader claims that he's a descendant of Muhammad and he's going to establish a caliphate eventually, which will include the state of Israel. Um, and uh, they basically do things which are wildly counterproductive, such as beheading uh, defenseless journalists on television um, and uh, also um, uh, killing military uh, prisoners, which means the next prisoners will not become prisoners. They'll fight to the death. Uh, they've also alienated virtually everybody else in the world. Um, so while they, every other country, certainly Arab and non-Arab in the world, so consequently the idea that this is a major threat is, is really very questionable and should be examined uh, more carefully. It's not in the book because it didn't happen before our conference, uh, but it is something we might want to consider. Okay, thank you. Thanks, John. Our first commentator will be Frank Hoffman, who is serving at the National Defense University as a senior research fellow with the Institute for National Strategic Studies. He has directed the NDU press operations, which includes the journals Joint Force Quarterly and PRISM. And in that regard, as both of us being publishers, we agreed in the green room that the greatest threat to a publisher <laughs> is a typo that proofreading misses. Uh, from August of 2009 to 2011, he served in the Department of the Navy as a senior executive, uh, as the senior director, national uh, capabilities and readiness. He retired from the Marine Corps Reserve in the summer of 2001 at the grade of lieutenant colonel. In addition to his formal duties, he has lectured extensively at institutions here 
in the, uh, in the United States, uh, the Middle East, and Europe. He has authored one book and over 100 essays and articles, and frequently, frequently contributes to the leading journals, uh, scholarly and popular, on uh, foreign policy matters. Welcome to Cato. Thank you for that kind introduction uh, and, and the kind invitation to appear here once again. I guess it's been a whole year now. That's how long it takes to, unfortunately, get a book out. Some people are amazed how long that is. I constantly it's have people. By, it's actually fast. By, it is fast by the real world. I keep having people come in thinking we're going to put it out in a month and crank it out. So, My dear friend Chris Preble has invited me here today uh, to demonstrate just how objective and uh, uh, and fair they are in looking for diversity views. Uh, so I, I really appreciate that. I'm here as the classic inveterate Pentagon pessimist. I'm what one contributor, Christopher Fetwise, referred to as the pathologically parochial when it comes to ascertaining the character of future threats. I'm one of those folks that sees boogeymen in a, in a lot of places, and not just because it justifies a large defense budget. I just so happen to agree with General Dempsey's view of the world uh, and the current and the future secure environment. And I'm also in agreement with General Clapper of the DNI, who thinks that the world is in worse shape than uh, earlier years of his time, and also with uh, the National Intelligence Council, which I sometimes work with. The chairman has been described by a, another research fellow, not a contributor to this book, as a threat monger. Uh, like the chairman, I see the potential for instability and projected threats in the future, uh, which I think are, are broader, but perhaps not as deep or as, as risk intense as we've seen in the past. So General Dempsey's not here today, and I'm certainly not his official proxy, uh, but I would like to defend him. And I've invited here so that you could all see what a real live threat monger looks like. <laughs> there are such creatures uh, in the world. Uh, with respect to a dangerous world, I'm, I'm really impressed with the book. Uh, I'll be perfectly honest, I am. Uh, it's, it's an honest assessment. I think it's a very valuable contribution to the, to the literature and the field. There hasn't been such a, a comprehensive broad book length kind of assessment. Uh, John's done a, a number of works collectively that uh, capture a lot of this, but uh, this is a unique book and one I think fills a large vacuum in our literature. So I think we need to have a clear idea about what threats matter and what risks can be mitigated, what can be ignored, what myths can be uh, eliminated, and what risks and threats have to be really hedged against. So A Dangerous World is a well-designed and well-edited exploration into the past and current threats, and I strongly encourage you to buy it. Thank you. Buy it, yes. <laughs> and, at, and at the price out there, that's actually a really good deal for books. But you're going to get something of an element of cognitive dissonance when you read this book. Collectively, it asks you to ignore the impression that you're going to get just reading the front page of today's papers. You might think after reading this book that the Civil War in Syria doesn't exist and that 200,000 people have not died uh, in the last few years. Uh, Damascus is a vacation hotspot. Kobani is a video game. The Crimea is an international economic zone. Putin's put his shirt back on and isn't wrestling with animals anymore. And his troops are no longer in Ukraine or in Swedish waters, apparently. Um, Hamas and Hezbollah have embraced democracy. They've taken on the shekel as their national currency. And the two-state solution has been accepted while you slept last night. You missed all this. You just didn't know this. Israel's converted to vacation guides along the Euphrates. You can buy a ride, you get an orange jumpsuit for your, uh, for your attire. North Korea has a Disneyland, Peter Robbins, their ambassador to the United States, and they have 100 pizza huts in the Hermit Kingdom. Beijing's Central Committee has renounced communism, 
They've turned in their Swiss bank accounts, all their real estate holdings in uh, Chelsea and Kensington and London, and we're going to have elections in the fall. The mullahs in Tehran have renounced their nuclear program and clerical rule, and the Quads Force, the Quds Force, has stood up the Iranian Boy Scout brigades, and brownies now sell pistachio popcorn at stores in Tehran. Obviously, that's not the world we live in, and this book doesn't make light of some of the threats that we face. We do live in a better world, and we've enjoyed the better part of a generation of great power peace for the last 25 or 30 years. And there are clear statistical metrics, which we could debate, that suggest things are improving for quite a long time. And I would like to see that progress continue. I'm simply inclined to see the progress of the last quarter century as a deliberate byproduct of our efforts and our collective ability to create and enforce a rule-based international system. It's not evidence of a self-generated global community that is inexorably moving towards peace along a preordained path of shared prosperity. That, that does not naturally occur, in my view. I don't discount the progress. I'm just very skeptical it can be sustained without effort. The linear glide slope of the last 20 or 30 years, so evident of the last few years, has really flattened out statistically over the last two or three years. And it could be reversed, as it has been in the past, if we don't work to preserve it and our nation's core interests, our nation's core security interests, not the mythology and the, the hype of, of some. So I really encourage you to read the book. Uh, there's three or four chapters I particularly like. I did like Professor Mueller's chapter on nuclear proliferation. Uh, the nuclear terrorism threat, I think, is, is somewhat greatly exaggerated. I'm, I'm told that Mr. Obama stays up at night worrying about a nuclear terrorist in New York. I encourage him to read John's chapter, not because the writing will put him to sleep, but because the facts and the argument, I think, will alleviate his concern. I have a somewhat less benign concern about proliferation, particularly with Iran and North Korea in the future, that I'd like to see John extend some time and think about that. And uh, I think as we look towards future threats, other forms of proliferation, perhaps in the bio uh, realm, will be of, of concern down the road. But they're certainly not today. Paul Pilar's got a great chapter on uh, terrorism and non-state actors, really uh, devastates the whole argument about uh, safe havens. Um, I'm more concerned about the growth curve when we see units and organizations like ISIL kind of growing around organically, attracting resources, uh, intelligence, weapons, financing. Uh, I, I think we might be living in a slightly different world with a different threat, but not of one that I think will affect the homeland. So I think Paul's correct on that too. Martin Lubicki's got a great chapter on cyber uh, concerns, uh, largely an espionage and a criminal uh, problem here in the homeland. Uh, I don't believe in cyber waterloos that will defeat the United States. Uh, I'm a little more pessimistic, so I think there is something of, a, of an argument for an operation of the scale of a, you know, a Pearl Harbor kind of thing with uh, not against the homeland, but against like Pearl Harbor was, was a surprise attack on a fielded force. I don't think we're as good as cyber warfare as we need to be. And, and but, you know, Pearl Harbor, as much as it devastated an aspect of the fleet, really didn't slow down the country very much. And it was just really a, a strategic era that was, you know, foreseeable, could have been defended against, and hopefully our defense department's working, you know, against that pretty hard. Uh, but I'm still concerned about the scale of the efforts at the NSA, the creation of Cyber Command, the thousands of people we seem to be hiring uh, on a problem we have trouble defining and the metrics we have trouble uh, justifying. So there's something there. Martin's chapter is uh, very well grounded. Uh, Josh Schifferson has a wonderful chapter on maritime security. Uh, we're all concerned about China's anti-access. When you look at it from their perspective, it's really the defense of their homeland. 
Uh, it's not an attack on the United States. Uh, it, it may threaten as the range of some of their capabilities over time extend. It does put some of our friends in, in Taiwan, Japan, and uh, in, in that area at some risk. It is somewhat designed to preclude us from uh, exploiting freedom of action over there. But unless you're concerned about invading China, you know, at the present capability level, it's really not as much of a concern as some people try to make it out to be. But it could be over time. So I think Josh has got a really great chapter. I think he underestimates Iran's capabilities for the Straits of Hormuz. But again, that's not a, a threat that directly attacks the United States. It's an international problem. It's something I think we could uh, resolve rather quickly. But Iran does because of its geography and the, and the capability mix of things it's buying and very advanced cruise missiles and very advanced mines does present a problem to the international community. But that's a problem for the South Koreans. It's a problem for the Japanese. It's increasingly a problem for the Chinese because they get so much more of their energy there than we do. And in fact, decades from now, we might not uh, you know, draw very en any energy, energy at all from the Persian Gulf. So and again, those are, are great chapters. Um, I think uh, the authors really should be commended. If I could wrap up my own personal thoughts, again, we live in a better world right now, one in which our influence and our efforts have helped shape and create. It hasn't happened organically or naturally. If we want to see the positive trends continue, it will not be achieved merely by retrenching our defense spending or retreating from the world stage. I've published several articles for very smart defense cuts, somewhat, something at about or lower than our current sequestration level defense spending. And I haven't changed that particular view, but I'm not calling for retreat or willful complacency. When it comes to imagining our defense needs, I think we should look forward with clear eyes and with a little bit of imagination, uh, but not hyperbole or exaggeration. I think we have to examine trends and look for continuities in experience over the last decades and projected discontinuities that we can see, and that's the business of the intelligence community. I see several emerging characteristics that suggest a, a reversal of many positive trends of the past generation, and I'll discuss those. The combination of China's assertiveness, the dawning of revolutions in cognitive bioscience and nanotechnology, the socio-political and economic disruptions of the Arab world can make a prudent strategist question assumptions about a world in which peace is assumed rather than worked towards. These are not the reflective screeds of a frenetic scaremonger, which I've been called, or others have been called. They're merely simple assessments of a plausible future uh, from a serious national security analyst, to include General Clapper and General Dempsey. They also reflect a sober historical reading. Yes, we in the defense enterprise may exaggerate threats or see them as posing greater consequences than what actually occurs. But the flip side is the mistake of sweeping aside the unfamiliar or the undesirable as low probability, a practice fraught with risk. That was a luxury we could afford for the last generation when we had such a power uh, relationship uh, far in excess of any threats that we faced. And we had more docile rival states uh, that we faced. But that error is over. And I think that assuming that peace is assured would be a huge mistake and do more to reverse the positive trends that we've gained and the long peace that we've enjoyed. The conditions that generated that long peace, a lack of great power competition, reduced resource pressures, broad and equitable economic development, generous support for conflict mitigation and resolution and peacekeeping support operations, and America's strong coalition of capable partners are all factors that I see as dissolving. The trend lines we've seen since 1991 have flattened out and could quickly rise again as they have in the past. So in short, complacency and retrenchment will ensure the return of history in very short order. 
And so while we can't predict the future, the long arc of history is the surest guide to what lies ahead. And the only question is whether we're going to be prepared or render vulnerable by what Margaret McMillan has called culpable complacency. So while I would tell my fellow threat mongers to take a deep breath into a brown paper bag, uh, there really is little to hyperventilate uh, about that directly threatens America. So I agree with Chris's uh, commentary today. But the future may not be so kind. Uh, so too for my friends who falsely think they live in a world in which human nature and history have fundamentally changed. We shouldn't wear rose-colored glasses as we peer into the future. I recommend that we all go back and glance at Thucydides, Hobbes, Clausewitz, and even my good boss, General Dempsey. I think they all have recognized that despite Steven Pinker's arguments, the better angels of our nature is a hope and an aspiration more than it is a reality. A true appreciation of the human condition, one founded on a few millennia of frequently brutish and violent human history, will always serve as a reminder of the folly of illusory and utopian thinking. Thank you very much. Our second commentator today will be James Fallows, who is a national correspondent for The Atlantic and has written for the magazine since the late 1970s. He was raised in Redlands, California, received his undergraduate degree in American history and literature from Harvard, and received a graduate degree in economics from Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. In addition to working for The Atlantic, he has spent two years as chief White House speechwriter for Jimmy Carter, two years as the editor of US News and World Report, and six months as a program designer at Microsoft. Fellows has been a finalist for the National Magazine Award five times and has won once. He has also won the American Book Award for nonfiction and a New York Emmy Award for the documentary series Doing Business in China. He was the founding chairman of the New America Foundation. His recent books, Blind into, into Baghdad, 2006, and Postcards from Tomorrow's Square, which appeared in 2009, are based on his writings for The Atlantic. Mr. Fowles. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I recognize that my real function now is to be a pad between um, Frank Hoffman's commentary and the response by John Miller and Chris Pribble uh, about their book. But I'll try to have a little bit of a value add in these seven or eight minutes before I let them come back to, to talk about uh, Frank's critique of their book. I am not in all ways a man of Cato. Uh, there are many uh, points of domestic policy where I'm at very serious odds with the, uh, the approach of the Cato Institution. But it's, I mention this both because it's a sign of how seriously I've taken the defense and terrorism work that Chris and John and Ben Friedman have done over the, the years, and also my recognizing that on this issue, I am much more in sympathy with the argument of this book than, than Frank, Frank Hoffman was. And I'll try to explain why, like him, I think it's an important work analytically. But also, perhaps unlike Frank, I hope that this does affect public consciousness, political awareness, as we get as we gird for the endless political season that maybe these arguments will be part of the assessment of how we spend money, how we think about our place in the world, and all, all the rest. So I'm going to talk about three things for two or three minutes apiece. They're my areas of uh, comparative uh, advantage here, one being China, where I've lived for a long time. A second is the press, where I've worked for an even longer time. And third would be the political system, which I have observed and which is a theme of their book as well. In each of these three areas, I'm going to try to say that the perspective that the book presents is one I'm in sympathy with and trying to see how we can advance its goals. On the point of China, I think the chapter by Lyle Goldstein in the book is 
right in its essential argument, which is, I would even extend further to say that it's surprising how well the relationship between China and the U.S. had been managed over now almost 40 years. If you consider how easily that, that relationship could have gone astray, there is a standard narrative, perhaps the most um, the best known exponent of which these days is uh, Neil Ferguson of, of uh, now of Harvard, which is that the rise of China is anal analytically very similar to the rise of Imperial Germany a century ago, and that it is fated for conflict with the incumbent power of the United States, just as Germany was in a sense fated for conflict with England uh, a century ago. I think that is entirely wrong. I think there are few historical analogies with less in common than Imperial Germany and modern China, uh, but that this, this concept has, has been in place. I think, in fact, if we were studying the, uh, the, the affairs of, of nations, just as the book argues that things are better than they seem, I think this policy has been more successful than it seems. And we have perhaps the the one, uh, the, the, the unique um, specimen in U.S. foreign policy of, of a, a strategy that's been more or less the same from the time of Richard Nixon through the time of Barack Obama. That strategy, I'll say a word about, and then I'll, I'll leave further discussion of China for later on. I think the, the consciousness of the United States has been, uh, has been the tripartite and, and constant from Nixon through Obama. The first plank of this policy was it would be better to work with China than against China that if we, we think that our approach is to find some ways to accommodate them rather than to consider them as an enemy, that will have advantages for us in the long run. A second and less obvious part of the strategy is that it's better for the United States if China grows and prospers than if it does not. That all the complications that come with a rich and more assertive China are better than those that would come from a poor, struggling, and even more fractious China. And the third uh, leg of this policy has been Notwithstanding the first two, we're going to have serious disagreements on uh, items ranging from Taiwan to internal human rights in China and, and all the rest. Uh, in another forum or in my, my most recent book, China Airborne, I can try to argue about how this whole situation looks from the Chinese point of view. Uh, I'll just leave that to say China has more problems internally and internationally than are usually appreciated from the U.S. perspective. And awareness of that, I think, has guided both U.S. and Chinese uh, military strategy as they inter interacted with each other. And I think it is a success story and should mainly be seen as that. Uh, item number two, the press, uh, my, my inst institution. Many of the things that are wrong with the press these days, you can ascribe to the business um, transformation slash catastrophe that has affected the news business over the last uh, generation. That catastrophe is for, for another time to discuss. I think the largely pernicious role the press plays in threat understanding, threat assessment, and threat inflation has roots that go far beyond the recent business transformation of the press. I recommend to everyone a wonderful movie from the early 1950s <clears throat> called Ace in the Hole. It's about the equivalent of the Ebola scare of the early 1950s. And you see how even before the Internet, even when we think of responsible figures judge, uh, running journalism, it's always been the same, that people in this business have always found fear more interesting and exciting than, than other things. There are... There are modern factors which exaggerate and accelerate this tendency. The fact that cable news, for example, can focus on one story all the time, that is uh, different. You know, CNN brought that to high art during the missing Malaysian airplane a uh, couple of months. So this is, but it's a difference in degree rather than of kind. 
Uh, long ago, the founder of the Manchester Guardian newspaper said that the goal of great journalism was to see the world steady and see it whole. That's the goal. Journalism doesn't usually uh, re uh, come close to that, but that still is aspirational. A value of this book, I think, should be to have some kind of counterweight. Uh, people can say, well, we think Ebola is so threatening or these uh, beheaders in, in the Middle East, but let's have a bigger picture, and this book may provide some, some fodder there. There is an asymmetry of risks for people in journalism as there is for people in politics. That is, you think you have more to lose by being too optimistic than too pessimistic. And books like this can, to some slight degree, help change that calculation. Category number three, um, the politics of threat inflation and, and fear. This is something that, that all of our authors and Ben Friedman have written about in very, very effective ways. I'd like to suggest this brief narrative of US politics, which suggests the challenge that is ahead for all of us. I first became interested and involved in defense policy more than 30 years ago when I left the Carter administration to start working for uh, The Atlantic magazine. And my assessment then that was that because of the frictions and the, the terrible trauma of the Viet Vietnam War, we would had a, <clears throat> a damaging political dysfunction in thinking about defense. That is, the Democrats of, the previous, of that generation had become so against the main exercise of military policy in Vietnam that they became estranged from the military itself. They didn't want to know about it. They didn't want to inform themselves about the military. So we ended up having uh, discussions that were only about how much money you're going to spend. And so I tried to uh, educate myself and our readers on this issue. And I dealt with people like uh, Newt Gingrich, who was then a, uh, a bushy-tailed, idealistic young congressman, Gary Hart who was then and is now a person who was really informed about defense, and that they were putting forward their, uh, their critiques of how else the United States could rationally run its, its defense policy. If you think of the situation, if the situation 30 years ago was troubling in various ways, because only a few Democrats were thinking seriously about a military, and the discussion was mainly about defense, about spending levels, from the perspective of 2014, that looks like the age of Socrates and Plato and the Founding Fathers and Edison and Steele and any other comparison you want to make, because now essentially there is no political discussion of anything about defense at all. Uh, during the, uh, the most recent presidential date, debates between Romney and Obama, the only exchange about the military was Romney's little line about, uh, well, we don't have as many uh, naval vessels, and Obama shot back saying we don't have as many cavalry horses either, and that, that was it. Uh, one of the recent uh, House subcommittees passed a defense uh, budget vote by a unanimous margin. This is the Congress that cannot agree on highway funding bills, on anything, but it's having no substantive uh, uh, debate about defense, which means the main drivers of military spending become fear mongers, in my view, and people with vested interests. This is exactly what Dwight Eisenhower was warning about in his, uh, his farewell address 50-plus uh, years ago. Uh, there is, in the last paragraph of this book, there's something that I put in the category of, wouldn't it be pretty to think so? Uh, this is um, this is in the final chapter. I think it's by Ben Friedman about why the excess of the past uh, decade may have some healthful uh, counterexample. He says, although a only a small segment of U.S. society fought the wars in Iraq Afghan and Afghanistan, they encouraged a strong anti-war shift in U.S. public opinion. That sentiment, combined with austerity's tendency to create support for lower military spending, makes for an unusually receptive audience. 
in the public and especially among educated elites for institutional reforms that slow expansionary U.S. foreign policy and military spending. Um, I hope that is the case, and I hope that this book uh, proves to have influence in those regards. And so now I turn it back to the authors of the book to defend themselves against, uh, against criticism. Would the editors wish to offer any responses, or shall we go to Q&A? Okay. Go ahead. Um, yeah, uh, one, uh, Frank talks about basically the fact that this book fills a gap, and I think he's, I think he's right, but it's, it's somewhat appalling that there's a gap to be filled, and it also fits what, what Jim Fellows was saying. Uh, it should be the most fundamental thing is about foreign policy and certainly about defense policy is what are the threats and, as Chris suggested, how bad are they? It's not simply there's a threat out there, something could happen, but how bad is the threat? Uh, and that kind of uh, straightforward, obvious uh, issue that you you know meet with a doctor, you know you've got cancer, but how bad is it? What's the chances, and so forth? Uh, simply don't seem to come up. As Chris used the phrase probability neglect. It simply isn't there. Uh, the second point, actually, uh, uh, is the in uh, um, opposition to what Frank was saying, was the issue about uh, complacency. Um, after this last decade, it may seem time for complacency big time. Um, you know, if the United States had been complacent about Iraq, uh, Saddam Hussein might have done some bad things, but it's very questionable and certainly not likely to be nearly as bad as what the United States did. Robert Gates has said, um, I think it's Gates, uh, several people, and it's a really a new phrase in military uh, uh, thought, um, and uh, Jim Fallow's last comment uh, reflects that, and Ben Freeman's uh, comment reflects that. Uh, is one of the things you should do before sending in troops or doing military action is various things. And what's the end game and all that kind of stuff, which is standard stuff. But what, he, what was added was, how do we know we won't make things worse? Uh, over the course of the last decade and a half, almost everything the United States has done militarily has made things worse. Whether it's in Iraq, in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Syria, where it uh, encouraged this, this uh, rebellion, which has now gone up in smoke with uh, massive human suffering, and even in its one seeming success for a while, uh, Libya. Um, and so it seems to be time for a fair amount of humility. The idea that the United States knows how to do, solve these problems uh, is put up against a uh, almost unblemished record of a catastrophic failure over the last, in this century. Um, and uh, so a little bit of humility to go back to George W. Bush when he was running for the presidency in 2000 uh, and before 9-11. Uh, uh, a good deal of humility would be, uh, seem to be a, a reasonable thing. The way to put it is, if you can't get the schools in Washington, D.C. work, how do you know you can be, you know, solve these other problems with uh, people who can't even speak the language? I, I just want to pick up on one, on one thing that, that Frank said. And I think... Um, Frank made a very good uh, cogent argument on behalf of hegemonic stability theory broadly defined, right? The notion that uh, the reason why there's peace in the world is because of the power of the United States to... to I don't support primacy. You don't support that. Ever. All right, well, one of the, the one line... I thought you did a good job making people that case. Maybe that, There are people out there that do, so maybe if it's not Frank. Um, but even Pinker, Frank, as you know, even Pinker admits that um, the, that there's something to this, right? It's not just a change in human nature, but there, there's, he talks about uh, the importance of Leviathan as a, a kind of defending against domestic crime, which is why d crime is, is down so dramatically over, over many years. Um, 
And so there, there is something to this, but I think there are, there are several different chapters in this book that take on quite directly the question of um, the role the United States plays in keeping the world, has played in keeping the world relatively peaceful and the role that it should or will play in the future at doing the same thing. And the one, the one thing that you said, Frank, that I want to pick up on, I think you know I've written about this quite a bit, is that uh, we have capable allies, capable partners out there. Um, my, my response to that is, would that that were so, right? Because while I, I, don't, dis, uh, I, I don't disagree that, that some military capability on the part of some states uh, would be a good thing, I generally believe that a little bit more on the part of more states would also be a good thing. And to the extent that they don't have very much, it's because the United States effectively does it for them, okay? And that, as you know, is a, is a big part of my work. And that creeps in a little bit into discussion where it's relevant here is that if the threats are not so great to the United States itself, then defending this forward presence over a very long period of time is going to get harder and harder. Uh, and, uh, and the threats, it turns out, are more urgent and more serious for other countries and other regions. Uh, and that would, you would think, uh, induce them to do more. All right. We know the question and answers now. Uh, please wait to be called on. I will uh, select you by rather crudely pointing in your direction and indicating where the person with the microphone should go. And do please wait for the microphone so that everyone in the room and our audience online can hear the question. We ask also that you uh, tell us your name and any affiliation you might want to reveal. And if you wish to direct your question to one of our panelists, please do so, although in general, all the panelists have a warrant to re reply to questions. Uh, let's start with the gentleman in the center here, two people in. My name is Stephen Shaw. The, the last comments touched on something that has been a continual part of any defense or military strategy debate. I think it's generally conceded on both left and right that our allies could spend more and could do more. But nonetheless, one consequence of their not spending more and doing more is that when something needs a or a military solution, it is the United States uh, essentially alone that determines what the solution would be. And in a world where other, uh, even allies were spending more and doing more, would they not have their own opinions as to how to solve crises that opinions that may be in conflict with American views and this conflict having the means and the power to um, come up with their own policy, would America be less secure with stronger-minded allies doing their own thing? Uh, I'll just answer one part of that question because it falls under what I just said. Um, uh, ben Friedman in his chapter and in his other writings, uh, but also Christopher Fettweiss in this book uh, and elsewhere, um, uh, connects the tendency to threat inflate to on the part of the United States, on the part of Americans, in order to sustain this forward military posture and to defend other countries. In other words, uh, that in order to, to convince the American people to, to have this very large military that is mainly organized around defending other countries, you have to exaggerate the, the nature of the threat here to the United States. I think that's a plausible uh, argument, and I think that, again, some of, the, some of the chapters in this book get at this uh, debate in a little bit more detail. Could I add uh, just one, one, one thing on that? I think we have strong allies 
In 2003, the French said, don't go into that stupid war. Uh, and the Turks, another ally, said, you can't use our bases if you can go into that stupid war. Uh, if we'd been listening to these strong allies, we wouldn't have gone into that stupid war. And there'd be a lot of non-dead people walking around. Um, it, uh, so I think in many respects, they're, they're, they're restraining the United States. It is the case the United States says, we're going to go in anyway because we've got all this gear. And they say, well, if you want to die, go for it. Uh, why, why not a free ride? Uh, the one place where they may have been too encouraging uh, was on Afghanistan, where they made it into this NATO mission and so forth. Uh, but I think uh, what's needed is, is people pulling back. And frequently, it's been the strong allies that did, do, 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 uh, have done it, saying, if you go in, it's without me. Yeah, excellent question, and this kind of ties to something that I know Chris and I actually agree on. It's an aspect in Chris Fetwise's chapter, and there's this, I don't know if it's a conceit or it's an element of hubris or American arrogance that we're indispensable, and we make ourselves so. Um, we shelter our, our allies. We don't enable them or make them more capable, and we don't induce them to do the right thing for themselves, and we have allies that are less capable, less credible, and we wanted them that way. Uh, we, we elect to do things for them, for ourselves. And I think we've uh, created a defense spending pattern that's allowed them to do that. Uh, the Japanese are attempting to, to break out of that. But it, my comments about the, the lack of less capable allies deals with the demographics and economics of Europe and our traditional allies. They're smaller. They're poor. I think they're going to be more self-focused over the next generation. The Germans have options, which they're not electing. But for France, Spain, Italy, and Southern Europe, uh, you're going to have an internal threat to deal with. You have socioeconomic uh, distress you're going to deal with. You're dealing in a new social order in which structural unemployment of 30 to 35 to 40 percent is the norm. And I don't see structural changes to get out of that. So that's where you're, you're going to have what we want to have is capable allies uh, that are induced to do the right thing for themselves rather than vassal states and auxiliaries that merely nod their head and get on the left flank like Roman auxiliaries did and and take take casualties for us, where, we, where they bleed and we lead. Uh, that's an element of arrogance we're going to have to get out of. But we're going to have to seek uh, more capable allies in the future. The kind of consensus and support we've had in the past just won't be there. So we need to get past our need or hubris of being indispensable. Uh, you know, you may want to lead. You may have a leadership role in the world. But you're going to have to listen to and take comments in and be a true coalition manager not just a decider ourselves where everybody else follows um, for political legitimacy rather than actual capability. Well, uh, for brief comic relief, I will, I will argue the contrary to my, my three fellow panels here. There, there's at least one part of the world where I actually think the U.S. Uh, U.S. exceptionalism has, has been valuable, which is, which is the military situation in East Asia, at least at the moment. The, the tensions between China and Japan are so inflamed in Japan, this, may, this is mainly because of amnesia. Most people in Japan are not taught why, they're, why uh, those in China might be uh, irritated to them. In China, it's mainly because of just relentless agitprop from the government. Every single night on Chinese uh, broadcasting, you can see some rape of Nanking drama. I mean, I'm not, not exaggerating. That's how we learn Chinese was by watching these things. And, and so it's uh, at the moment, it's better for everybody that the U.S. is, is sort of the uh, – has, has the presence that does um, – uh, especially with, with the Navy. In the long run, obviously, that's not ideal. At the moment, that's the one place where I think a U.S. Uh, greater, uh, an outsized U.S. presence is, is better than the obvious alternative. 
That reminds me, I, I learned German listening to programs in Germany about National Socialism. You end up with a very weird vocabulary. <laughs> <laughs> uh, four, four rows up and on the wall, please. Uh, thank you, uh, Pat Spann, just myself. I must admit I had a deja vu back to um, the 72 McGovern campaign when I heard Mr. Murrell talk about, make the same argument that Senator McGovern made, that if you didn't have the military capability, you wouldn't get into places like Vietnam. So uh, um, through that, I just wonder if each of you could maybe list two or three of what you consider major U.S. security issues. Chris, you want to start? Um, major, I guess that's the that's the part. Again, I, I look at the the range of things that we worry about, and I think that um, we enjoy a measure of security that our contemporaries envy, that our ancestors would envy, um, and and we don't sufficiently take account of that. Now, again, to to, to Frank's credit. Uh, explaining why we enjoy that security is a is a big part of what we should be doing here in terms of studying that. Um, I think that certain disruptive technologies in the military sphere um, could over time erode uh, the United States qualitative advantage in military capability, and that's worth paying attention to. but I but again, I, I emphasize that right now, we tend to focus on it uh, as a as a necessarily threatening thing, whereas in as it's being deployed in East Asia, in particular, for example, anti-excess and area denial. Um, if you turned it around, it would just look purely defensive. It's not not a direct threat to the United States. Um, I think that that concerns about uh, cyber. I think I think Martin Lubicki's chapter is absolutely outstanding. I think that. To the extent it's a problem, it's primarily a domestic law enforcement and intelligence problem, not a military problem. Um, I think John's work on nuclear weapons is outstanding. So I, I, I think that on the whole, um, there are a range of threats out there, but none of them are quite as serious as people make them out to be. Yeah, can I add on that? Your question didn't say, uh, uh, are there, what are the major security threats, if any? You just assumed that there were some, uh, and that's sort of like the, the threat reduction agency. It never comes up saying, hey, there aren't any threats out there of a major sort. Um, and I would basically agree with uh, Chris. I don't think there are any major security threats, and as far as I can see, there's unlikely for them to evolve in the, in the, in the next 10 or 15 years, though we'll have to wait, obviously, on that. Um, I, I, my starting premise is the United States enjoys enormous advantages over any other uh, any other state in 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 the um, in the world, and that our main problems and challenges are internal, not the ones normally think about militarily. If I thought of challenges, I think that you know there are a lot of nuclear weapons in the world, and it's worth making sure they don't get used. And that's something that's addressed in in this book. Um, Perhaps differently from many members of, of the panel or perhaps the authors, I think that, that real, real instability and chaos and warfare in East Asia would be a problem for us. And so it's worth our trying to, to keep that from happening. I think sometime, in, not very long from now, uh, the ability to have very small, very cheap um, miniaturized weapons that can be targeted, that can fly any place by GPS, and, uh, and they'll be sort of the handguns of, uh, of – of modern life, and much as handguns are a problem, these could be a problem too. So those would be my list. Yeah, I have a simple list, and 
I think you were using security in its broadest sense, but I'm, I'm more interested in, in the international system. So China's rise and its geopolitical influence and its, its breaking the bonds of the current international system, uh, be it you know, in the South China Sea is, is the biggest one. Russia's changing borders inside Europe in, in this generation is a more near-term issue. And then the nuclear proliferation in Iran and North Korea would be, would be my third issue. Can I pick up on something that Jim's now said twice? Because um, I'd like to be on the record to say that I am not looking forward to an East Asian war. Uh, I, I, I don't, I don't uh, uh, desire to see the Chinese and the Japanese get it on, uh, as it were. Uh, where we disagree, it appears, is in our, and actually you admitted this, Jim, that our ability to sustain this peaceful order through our primacy is going to attenuate over time. It already has attenuated to a degree. Uh, and so what I would like to see us get on is to transition to the next phase, something else that will be preventing China and Japan from going to war with one another, as opposed to the old model, which we've sustained for roughly 70 years. Gentlemen in the second row on the right, my right. Uh, Lloyd Hand, King and Spaulding. Uh, I want to ask a question, Mr. Hoffman. Um, I, I read recently a DHS report on the security, uh, actually it was a GAO report on DHS efforts to secure our borders. Um, uh, I'm not quite sure, uh, I think it's a very interesting, very stimulating, provocative uh, panel, but, uh, but I'm not clear on exactly how we measure the threat. But, but going back to this report, uh, uh, I was I was uh, in, intrigued by your minimizing the threat of nuclear, and I suppose you would include radiological threats. We've spent billions of dollars over the last several years developing technology to meet the requirement of the law, which is scanning 100% of the cargo that comes in the U.S. from foreign ports. We now are scanning less than 3%. Over 95% of the cargo comes into the U.S., uh, comes in cargo containers, which is mostly maritime, not all. Um, it seems to me there's a, there is a, a mismatch of the application of resources. Uh, also, I find that particularly um, troublesome because the Lieberman-Collins Committee when holding hearings on the threat of nuclear radiological found that over the last 10 years, there are about 1,100 instances of the um, uh, inability to, to uh, uh, secure a nuclear, special nuclear materials. Uh, we know that, this sticking on nuclear, we know that in today's asymmetrical, asymmetrical warfare, that death itself is not a deterrent for suicide bombers. And it's said that we only have to make a mistake once. They have to be uh, successful uh, only once. Uh, if you connected a suicide bomber with the availability of nuclear materials, and you already have seen evidences of trying to get in a non-nuclear that we were fortunate to catch, why would you minimize the threat of uh, uh, nuclear harm to the US? Maybe Chris might be the only person in the room, or John doesn't know my background. Uh, I've actually had the privilege of working simultaneously for Mr. Hart and Mr. Gindrich in 1999, and 
I'm the originator of the legislation for the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, which I argued in 1999, two years before, uh, mostly inspired by Mr. Gingrich's and Senator Rudman's insights from their, from their deep backgrounds. Uh, so I'm not minimizing the threat. I've advocated for DHS uh, of, of a proper scale. But this notion that we could secure our borders is more Sisyphean and terribly expensive. You would, you would use 20 active duty divisions. You would have a border guard and a national guard five times larger if you wanted to, to review everything. So the creation of DHS and, and, and the use of technology to focus on real threats tied to real intelligence, to real vulnerabilities was an important part of the, of the creation of that. So I'm sympathetic to the idea that the, the nation's first interest is security of the homeland. But the notion that someone's going to get a nuclear bomb of a non-state actor and going to try to infiltrate it through uh, the subway system or a container uh, in New York is, is not plausible enough for me to devote more than intelligence. Uh, I'm not interested in the technology. If I'm going to scan some number of people, some number of boxes, uh, I'm going to make sure that that 2 or 3% is the 2 or 3% that comes from suspicious people doing anomalies. And that's the creation of the system that we've largely created. Uh, you know, the try to, again, balance our interest in security with our political traditions and values. You know, we can secure this country and just give the, give the function to, to the army or something and triple the size of the army. But that's not who we are or what we want to be. Uh, so there is always some kind of a, a, an explicit risk assessment. So like, like John, I, I play down the issue of nuclear terrorism. I know it's possible. I know it's, you know, with some imagination that I can create the scenarios, and I've seen the movies. Uh, but active intelligence of people trying to do that and our ability to detect it and prevent it would just, would just consume our security budget in its entirety. So uh, there, are, there are things we're doing, things we can do better. You know, DHS is not, not what we imagined it would be, uh, but it is going through the throes that we imagined we'd have to go through that other departments and agencies in DOD have. I, th I think we're in a much better place today than we were, say, 10 years ago. I think in 1999, I was considered quite a heretic. I'm probably still considered a heretic in some circles. But uh, this idea that we could detect everything and inspect every box, is, it would just ground the economy. So the argument I used to make when, it, when we were doing this in 1999, I think the Dow was at seven or 8,000, and I wanted it to be at 12. Uh, <laughs> I want to retire at some point in time, and I got a, you know, a federal uh, retirement that's tied to a 401k, which I imagine everybody else here does. Uh, if you want to... If you don't want to retire and you want to see the Dow at 4,000, try to inspect 20% of the cargo and the people that come in this country. You will ground the economy to a halt. Actually, there's technology that can scan 100%. Yeah. The cost is a fraction. But it's already yeah, well, I'm a few years beyond my study on this because I'm, I'm back to the defense business. But, uh, Perhaps we could continue that conversation yeah. after the, and then anyone else? Yeah, there is a chapter in the book on that. It came out of my book, Atomic Obsession, that came out a few years ago. And it just seems to be the uh, likelihood that anybody will try to use a cargo ship sending a bomb in by UPS or something. The United States is microscopic. And the, the cost, if you're right that they suddenly find a magical way to do it cheap, I'd be impressed. But uh, it is very costly uh, in the estimates I've seen of uh, trying to inspect every uh, cargo ship. Uh, the idea that anybody smart enough to build a nuclear weapon would then put it on a cargo ship as opposed to building an airplane to fly it, it seems very questionable. But basically, no terrorist has even gotten beyond square one. 
in the incredible and difficult thing of either stealing or uh, fabricating a nuclear weapon. But there's a lot of discussion of that. And in, there's four chapters on it in my book on atomic obsession. Did you want to say anything? I'll have one sentence. I try like crazy to avoid ever using the word homeland. I think it is not an American word. It brings up both Teutonic and Soviet implications in the bad sense. And so I think if we could have it, I would love, I'm glad that Frank started this department. I'd love it to be called the Department of National Security or something like that. But homeland, uh-uh. <laughs> Anything. Uh, gentleman down from front here in the middle. What, could you wait, please, for the microphone? Um, can you hear? Um, no, it's on. John Bushka, um, doasdotail.com. Just to pick on your question, which was an excellent question, I hear these very personalized threats from overseas that Americans are supposed to feel guilty about their lives or some, you know, from, it used to, be, it used to come from the far left as well as from, you know, radical Islam. And um, this, and the far right also is always saying, well, we shouldn't count on civilization to work. We should all have our guns and our, our homes, and we should be ready to survive in a world without electricity like in the show Revolution. I do think there – is there something to the, to the idea that dirty bombs could destroy our economy or that mobile, you know, mobile EMP devices, which Michael Maloof talks about in his book, could be made and that – and should, shouldn't we at least be doing more to protect the power grid from things like solar storms and so forth? Aren't there things we should be concerned about and should be doing that we aren't to, um, so we into, so we can defend our individualism in a sense? Because I feel that our individualism is attacked by these kinds of comments. I hear from both the far left and the far right and from radical Islam. John? Yeah, you could do it if you could demonstrate there's anything resembling a credible threat for it to happen. Uh, dirty bombs are substantially different from nuclear uh, atomic bombs, exploding bombs. Exploding bombs kill people. Dirty bombs don't kill anybody, essentially. Um, and so the likely uh, problem is basically hysteria, panic. Uh, and many, many studies have shown that. Uh, so the, the way, if you want to deal with it, the, deal, the way to deal with it is to try to deal with uh, what might come out of it, the panic. Uh, which is not the department of whatever it is, security, has not been very good at trying to uh, be, be, uh, uh, deal, deal with that particular issue. It's, it's basically um, not a big deal uh, overall. Um, it, it, it would shut down a lot of things only because uh, people are panicked, not because it's necessary overall. It's you, also difficult to do, extremely difficult. Extremely difficult to do. You do make an argument, though, for resilience, which is things that all of us, I know Jim's talked about this, John, Ben, others. Um, that if you design into the system, um, if, you, if you identify certain vulnerabilities that, uh, for the power grid, for example, that make it vulnerable to um, uh, natural events, uh, then you, the, the additional effect is you also protect it against man-made events. So uh, what was it, a squirrel that uh, damaged the uh, uh, trans uh, transformer, right, in Ohio or Indiana, where it was? It took down a good part of the, the grid for a little while. Um, uh, you know, if you build in more resiliency, then you uh, protect the system better than you could by going after a very uh, highly unlikely uh, major event like an EMT, EMP strike, for example. Gentlemen? Gentlemen here on the right, third row up. 
Hi, uh, Robert Price from uh, from the Department of Defense. Uh, you know, I, I really appreciate the, the quality of the, of the book and the and the the things that are, are presented there. My question is: uh, Do any of the panelists have any insights into potential analytical approaches to threat assessment that could improve? I mean, is there a is there an analytical model that better assesses uh, probability and consequences that could could move us forward that you'd like to recommend? I mean, we can only get so far past vested interests, military industrial complex, the press likes a good story. I mean, you can only get past vested interests so much and you can argue over those. So I want to ask you, are you aware of any, like I say, uh, is there, is there a science that we can look at? Is there a better analytical approach to weighing out risks and threats by looking at probability consequences that you're aware of and that you can commend to policymakers. Uh, can I answer? Go ahead, yeah. Uh, yes, it's called cost-benefit analysis and risk analysis. I just I'd done a book in 2011 that was mentioned called Terror, Security, and Money, in which we seek, uh, my co-author and I seek to apply uh, cost-benefit analysis as it has been codified and is used throughout the government uh, to analyze risk uh, and to set to set it in quantitative uh, terms. That, that doesn't mean it makes the judgment, but it shows you how to look at it using concepts of acceptable risk, using co- questions of balancing be- uh, risks and uh, uh, balancing risks and benefits and costs, uh, and using the idea that certain thing the the idea that certain measures reduce risk. Do they? And the key issue is basically does it reduce the risk? that is, say, the likelihood or the consequence of a bad thing happening enough to justify its cost. It's used, the GAO, the GAO and other places require it in the United States. If you come in with a new uh, safety measure, like seat belts in the back seat of a car, which it, 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 the question is, well, you know, how many people are riding the back seat of the car? Uh, the back seat of the car is safer than the front seat because you don't have to slam into the windshield, et cetera. And it's used routinely for things like that. And you have to demonstrate that the the benefit of the of putting the seatbelts in the back seat of a car uh, just reduces risk enough to be worth its cost. Um, and that's this that it's very standard. It goes back hundreds of years. The guy who started this was a friend of Isaac Newton. Um, and it's been codified internationally over the last 40 or 50 years. Uh, the United States has signed on to the codification, and it uses it repeatedly. Uh, within the Department of uh, Heimat Security, um, <laughs> the, um, it's used brilliantly, state-of-the-art, for natural hazards. Should we build a hurricane shelter in a, in a, in a um, trailer park in Oklahoma? Well, how often do they get tornadoes? How bad are they? Can, people don't have basements. Is it worth it? And so forth. And they, and they go through that routine. Uh, it's, it's a standard sort of thing, uh, very much developed and very, very much codified. And uh, it has not been used for issues of, uh, of terrorism or of defense policy overall. There was a, a report, in fact, in 2010 by the National Academy of Sciences, which looked at the risk analytic capacity and uh, development of the Department of Homeland Security and said, HIMAT Security, uh, and said that the, um, uh, what they were doing in natural hazards was state-of-the-art, and they couldn't find any decision. They couldn't find any decision that was backed up by any credible analysis they would, they would, uh, the, of the sort that you're supposed to do when you say, should we put or not put um, uh, shelters in a, in, a, in a trailer park in, um, in Oklahoma. It's simply not there. Uh, the report, speaking, Jim 
talked about the press, I checked, and this report, which basically said the Department of Homeland Security has been sending hundreds of billions of dollars without knowing what the hell they're doing, uh, generated zero, zero response in the press. Nobody covered it. This is the National Academy of Science, not just some professor from Ohio State. Thing. <laughs> Uh, what, so what, what John is talking about in, includes a probabilistic assessment, so trying to make an, a judgment. And it's, it, is, it can be subjective at some level, but trying to assess the likelihood of something happening, and that's critical. Uh, and so I want to second that approach. Uh, the other, another approach is uh, a competitive approach. You recognize there are interests involved in assessing dangers and how to deal with these dangers. So uh, one approach is to pit those interests one against the other, okay? Uh, ben Friedman gets at this a little bit in his chapter, but also in his broader work, uh, which is uh, if, the, uh, if the Navy believes that the Chinese Navy is a particular threat uh, and they therefore are deserving of X number of dollars to deal with that threat, uh, let them make that case versus the Army, for example, that believes, no, 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 the greater threat is from terrorists that are living in safe havens in, the, in, in you know, far from the seas, and therefore those need to be get at. And so having a little bit more competition within the, uh, the government uh, could actually lead to better policy. I think that's a possibility. <clears throat> Can I add one thing? I, I don't. Um, I, I want to say I did not plant this question, uh, but the, uh, uh, Mark Stewart and I have just published a thing at Cato called Responsible Policy Analysis, and it basically summarizes the argument in the book. It's available uh, here, and it's available free online PDF. So it's called Responsible Policy Analysis. It just came out last month. So. The book today has been A Dangerous World, edited by uh, two of our speakers, Chris Preble and John Mueller. I would like to thank them. I would like to thank... Uh, uh, James Fallows and Frank Hoffman for serving as commentators. I would like to thank you for coming to this very interesting event we've had. Now it's time for lunch. Uh, we're going to go upstairs to the second level to the George Yeager Conference Center, which you go up the spiral staircase and then go toward the back. Restrooms are on the second floor on your way to the Yeager Center. Look for the yellow wall. Thank you very much for coming. I hope you think it's been worth the rain. <laughs>